Your Bible's open there at Philippians chapter 2. We're looking this evening, particularly at verses 12 to 18. Philippians 2 verses 12 to 18. One of the challenges of preaching through a letter like Philippians is that it can be hard to break it up into manageable chunks. Uh, There's a flow of thought to what Paul is saying in his letter, uh, which can be a little bit lost if we're stopping and coming back to it uh, week after week. Um, I'm not suggesting that I'm going to start preaching longer sermons, don't panic. Uh, But we do need to appreciate that as we come back to it each week that uh, it's not a a whole new subject that is completely separate from what we've covered already. And that's particularly striking this evening as we continue our studies in verse 12. You'll notice that verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. And that tells us that what we're studying this evening is, directly flows on from what Paul has already been saying in chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. We need to bear verses 1 to 11 in mind as we come to this next section this evening. And so, so far in chapter 2, Paul has urged the Philippians to live in humble unity together as a congregation. That was verses 1 to 4. In urging them to do that, he is Uh, He has brought to their attention the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. That in Christ's humiliation, he came down from heaven. He took on human flesh. He willingly died for the sins of his people through the excruciating death of the cross. And then in the exaltation of Christ, God the Father raised Christ from the dead and brought him back up into heaven and seated him. On heaven's throne as king of kings and lord of lords. And then comes verse 12. Therefore, this being the case. And in verses 12 to 18, Paul now is going to give us some applications and some implications. This is where the truth about Jesus applies to the nitty gritty of Christian life. You see, what we learn about Jesus should never be abstract or academic. Uh, The the truths of Scripture, the truths about Christ, they always have implications for our lives. When you're driving to work on a Monday morning, when Christian young people are using social media or socialising with your friends, when you older saints are in the quietness of your own homes, when You ladies are are busy in the workplace or in the home or in the church. Whoever we are, all of us are to realise the implications of what we have heard about Christ on the Lord's day or at other times. And so here Paul, having described the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, he says, therefore. You might say this is the, the so what of everything that we've seen already in verses 1 to 11. The implications For our own lives. And uh, without, we're not going to be able to get into every detail of every word of Paul's here in verses 12 to 18. Typically, of Paul, these verses are packed, but I want to draw out at least three implications uh, of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, his service of us as our Savior, uh, the salvation that he has granted to us. Three implications of that here in verses 12 to 18. The first implication is that we are to work out our salvation reverently. We're to work out 
our salvation reverently. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, Paul mentions his concern that the Philippians make progress in the faith regardless of whether he is with them physically or not. Christian parents, pastors, maybe youth leaders, they are a great gift to us. They can have a big impact upon us there. Uh, They spur us on in our faith, but we should never be entirely dependent on such people. Paul says, I don't want you to be only making progress because you have an apostle with you physically. He says, whether I'm there or not, I want you to be working out your salvation. The word work out in the original, it has the sense of something being fully applied or, or thoroughly produced. Now notice, friends, this is very important. He doesn't say work up your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He's speaking primarily to people who are already saved, who already have life in Christ, who have salvation. And he says, apply that salvation to every area of life. The word salvation, it means more than just becoming a Christian. Really, when we talk about, you know, if we say I'm saved, what we're really saying is that we're justified, that that we are justified through faith in Christ, that We've been saved, that once for all act of Christ that we receive by faith. But after justification comes sanctification. The process of becoming more and more like Christ, which is the reason God has saved us in the first place. Paul says elsewhere, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And part of that new creation is that we have new power, new ability to apply what Christ has given us to every part of our lives. If you imagine that you've been given a a huge can of of paint and you've got an entire wall to apply the paint to, well, it's no good just doing a few broad strokes on the the middle of the wall and thinking, right, I've got it done now. You're going to have to apply that. And there'll be parts of it, perhaps, especially as you get to the edge of the wall and you have to... You have to really work at it. Maybe you need a different type of brush. Maybe it's going to take you a bit more time than it does in the middle where you're just doing big, broad strokes. That's my specialty. Um, But it takes a bit more care and a bit more precision and a bit more skill to apply it to every part of the wall. And likewise, Paul says it's going to take effort and working out to apply your salvation to every part of life. God's providence, uh, it's nice the way it's worked out. I I, I say before, I really do hope that you read uh, on your bulletin the Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer each week, but it couldn't be more appropriate this week. What is sanctification? I'm not going through the whole answer there. It is quite lengthy, but sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time... So over the course of time, through the powerful operation of his spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ, we're working out our salvation to every area 
of life. So yes, every true Christian can say, I am saved. All because of God. Entirely his gift. But it's also true to say that we are yet to become fully what God intends us to be by saving us. That is perfect. Entirely holy. Free from every blemish. I don't know if he's the first person to sum it up this way, but uh, I like the explanation that Alistair Begg gives of this important point. He says, we have been saved from sin's penalty. We are daily being saved from sin's power. And one day we will be entirely saved from sin's presence. So we've been saved from sin's penalty. Uh, Eternal death and, and punishment from God no longer applies to us who are believers. But we're still in the process of being saved from sin's power upon us, its impact, its presence in our lives. And for that daily battle, effort is required. And it's one of the pieces of evidence that you genuinely are saved, that effort is going in to your obedience to God. And again, just to be very clear about what we're saying, uh, the efforts of a non-Christian, someone with no faith in Jesus, do not save them. Someone who says, right, I need to, I need to work, I need to perhaps start going to church, or I need to give more money to charity this month than I did last year, or uh, I need to really start being more careful about my speech. None of those things, out, uh, apart from faith in Christ, do any good to anyone. They do not save. But it's those who already are saved, who have uh, confessed their sin, who have repented, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who then are to work out their salvation, as the Catechism describes. But then in verse 13, Paul adds another element to this. He says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says, we work and God works. It's not just down to our own efforts. God has saved us and God continues to work in us and help us by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promised to his disciples, that he would send the helper, the encourager, the counsellor. And he helps us as we make every effort to apply our salvation. Don Carson says it this way, assured as we are, of the fact that God is at work within us, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master. In other words, knowing that God's spirit is at work in your life should be a motivator. It should spur us on in our obedience to a more godly living. Paul also says that we are to work out our salvation. Notice he says, with fear and trembling. That means, friends, there's to be a holy concern in our lives that we not be, in any regard, disobedient to God our Father. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear, amongst other things, means reverence for God, a fear of in any way displeasing Him, a concern, A genuine, deep-rooted concern for what God says and wants in every area of life. 
A growing number of Christians today, I believe, don't really understand this or give much thought to this. Instead, they use the death and resurrection of Jesus as an excuse to live however they like. I'll do what I like on Sundays because Jesus has died for me. That's all that matters. I'll live with whoever I want or sleep with whoever I want because God loves me regardless. I'll worship however I like to worship because all of it will be pleasing to God because I'm a Christian. No, that, none of that is, that, that's faulty thinking. The gospel is not a blank check to live however we like. The gospel is the power we need to live the way God wants. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, with a reverent concern to live as God commands us to live. One writer has described Christian obedience as a long walk in the same direction. It's a wonderful walk with beautiful sights and experiences along the way, but there's also, it's in the, and it's in the same direction. In other words, there's, there's just a, a stickability needed for it. A nitty-gritty, stick-at-it attitude. Our salvation is worked out amid doing the dishes and servicing the car and picking up the kids from school, seeing to the needs of elderly loved ones. It's worked out in our interactions with colleagues, our thought life, our willingness to serve in the church with the gifts we've been given. Yes, a, a daily time in God's word and prayer is important and it's, it's vital for us to make progress in the faith. But how often we, we step out of the room where we've had that time with the Lord and maybe there's, there's shouting and chaos in the house or something hits us like a ton of bricks and our patience is tested or our, our strength of faith is tested. That's where we are to apply our salvation with fear and trembling. For embarking on a business venture, we're to consider carefully, will this bring glory to God? Before entering into a relationship with someone, will this bring glory to God? How does my salvation apply to the, the balance of my time in terms of work and worship and Christian fellowship and time with my family? How does my salvation apply to what I'll choose to do or not do on the Lord's day? Again, Paul is not calling upon us to summon them up the effort to earn our salvation. He's saying you've been given the gift of salvation. Now work it out. It's like, again, the, the, uh, getting that wall completely covered, applying uh, our salvation to every nook and cranny of life. And for added incentive, know that God by his word and spirit is at work in you and will help you. When you give yourself to this working out of your salvation. <clears throat> so that's the first implication of uh, what Paul has been saying about the, the work of Christ in our lives. That we're to work out reverently. Uh, secondly, uh, we are to shine brightly. We're to shine brightly. Uh, look at verses 14 to 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish or defect in the midst of a crooked gent and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
Notice there Paul's description of the Philippians lights in a crooked and twisted generation. The word there for lights is also where we get our word for stars. And so Paul is saying, shine like stars in a dark sky. The word for crooked or twisted, it means something that is drastically bent out of shape. We sometimes talk about, you know, twisting our back or, or twisting a muscle or something. And something isn't right. Something is, is bent out of shape within us. And Paul says that's the world that we live in. Something has gone drastically wrong. Things are twisted. They're not as they should be. And Paul says in the midst of that, we are to shine. We are to stand out. And people today, both Christian and non-Christian, they can have the notion that the church is, is perhaps as, as we see in, on, on, a, on a visible level, at least in our country, we see numbers declining. We see less commitment. We see less people going to the place of worship. People can have the notion that that's because for the very first time, society doesn't agree with the morality of the Bible. That it's the first time in history the church has faced this. Well, of course, that's not true. Our society now resembles more than ever the society in Paul's day when, when the church, the New Testament church, first came into being. It was a crooked and twisted culture that the Philippians and all the other churches of the New Testament lived in. Virtually all the Roman emperors engaged in either homosexual or at least bisexual lifestyles. The idea of a, a faithful monogamous marriage was a bit of a joke in the elite circles of Roman society. Worship of one God was almost unheard of outside of Judaism. Abortion and infanticide were commonplace. There's nothing new under the sun, friends. And it's against that dark backdrop of a, of a crooked and twisted world that Paul tells the Philippians then and he tells us now to shine his lights. And in fact, the darker it is, the more easily you see the stars. And so it should be with our work and witness. As our society gets darker, our witness individually and corporately should shine brighter. Our distinctive should be, if you like, more distinctive. And Paul warns the Philippians what will hinder their shining here. And he also tells them what will help or be vital to their shining. Firstly, what will hinder their shining is grumbling or questioning. If you look at verse 14. Do all things, he says, without grumbling or questioning. That particular word for grumbling is very rarely used in the New Testament. It has the sense of muttering under your breath. We can be quite good at this in Northern Ireland, can't we? Go along to some event, you just sit there muttering to the person. to say, oh, look what that person's wearing. I didn't expect to see them here today. And you're just muttering along the whole time, giving a little running commentary of events. Well, Paul says uh, we're not to be grumbling, muttering under our breath, complaining about things. This is what Jesus' opponents would do when they heard him teaching. Uh, John uses the same word as Paul here in John 7 verse 12 uh, to describe some of Jesus' opponents. They were muttering or grumbling against him. And Paul again here, friends, this is a theme of this letter. He is warning against division in this church. 
mentioned before, but we'll continue to see this in the second half of the letter. It's a joyful letter, very encouraging letter from Paul. But in the midst of it as well, there is this constant warning from Paul to, uh, to, be, to be guarding against division. And so again here, he mentions the need to avoid a sort of a, a selfish, petty attitude. The kind of attitude, the muttering and grumbling that would leave non-Christians thinking, well, these Christians aren't any different from the rest of us. Uh, they, they sound pretty much the same as us. They gossip like we do. They grumble like we do. They complain about each other like we do. So what difference does it make whether you call yourself a Christian or not? Whether we're among fellow Christians or whether we're the only Christian in our team or in our workplace or in our school. We shouldn't be grumblers or gossips. We should shine by an attitude of gratitude, by words of encouragement or words of gentleness and concern for others. So gossiping or grumbling will hinder us from shining as stars. But what will help us, in fact, what is vital, he says, is that we hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Could also be translated holding out the word of life. So we're taking it in, God's word. We're taking it in for ourselves. We're also holding it out, offering it to other people. That when we have opportunity, when we go to engage with them or they come to engage with us, that we speak the word of God, that we are ready to explain the gospel and the need that others have to receive and believe that gospel. Paul is certainly including their witness to the world here, their, if you like, their explicit evangelism, the, the preaching and proclaiming of the word. But he's also thinking of, of the spiritual progress of the Philippians themselves, that they hold fast to it themselves, that they take it in and are impacted by it themselves. And so whether it's by a direct evangelism or whether it's by just the general attitude of believers, it's to have an impact, it's to be a shining light in the world. This is similar to what Jesus said, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to be salt, that we're to have an impact. We're to help to stop the rot, if you like. Things might seem pretty bleak in our country, spiritually speaking, and, and they are in many ways. But they would arguably be even worse were it not for the, the Christian heritage, the, the deep impact that biblical morality has had in our country for generations. That even those who weren't believers, they at least were impacted by biblical morality. And so for our own good... And for the good of the twisted world we live in, Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. <clears throat> and for added incentive, just look what he says at the, at the end of verse 16. He says, do these things so that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so Paul's making a personal appeal here, friends. He, of course, he's not saying that he himself is responsible for the, the faith of the Philippians, he was simply the one who preached the message of the gospel. Christ has changed them. Christ has saved them. But he's making a personal appeal nonetheless. He's saying, I toiled, I sacrificed to present Christ to you. Those are strong words that he uses there that, 
uh, that he didn't run in vain or labour in vain. It's the picture that Paul often uses of an athlete, someone devoting themselves to that cause. And he's saying that his reward for, that, for, the, for the run, for the marathon, if you like, is uh, it's, it's seeing the growth in grace. It's seeing the faithfulness, the stickability of these Philippians. And so he's personally appealing to them. They're to shine as stars now, knowing that a great reward will come later on the day of Christ. Dear Christian, do we consider this each day as we get on with our daily responsibilities that we are to shine as stars? Is there a note of joy and contentment and love in the words that we speak to people and to one another? Or are we so busy grumbling and complaining that there's really no obvious difference between us and the world around us? I remember hearing a pastor once say that when he's asked the question, how are you doing? Just that sort of conversation starter that we use sometimes. How are you doing? He sometimes replies by saying, I'm doing better than I deserve. And he finds that that can be a good conversation starter. It can be a good opportunity uh, as a believer because, you know, it's not something we tend to say. We just say, I'm fine. Can't complain. Well, it's good if you're not going to complain. But sometimes... Uh, it might get someone's attention to say I'm doing better than I deserve. Deserve God's punishment for my sin. I deserve to have nothing, uh, to have no hope in this world. I deserve judgment. But I'm a child of God. I'm saved by God's grace. I'm headed for heaven. Doing a lot better than I deserve. The point is people should see and hear about a joy in us. That shines, that stands out. Perfectly possible for those who call themselves believers to just be mumbling and grumbling along. Remember the Israelites wandering in the desert and several times over the years were told that they started grumbling and questioning Moses and Aaron. And to do so in effect they were grumbling and questioning God. It may it not be so with us friends as we dig deeper into the scriptures. As we hopefully grow in grace, as we delight ourselves more in Christ, may we be shining all the brighter in this twisted world to the glory of God. So we're to work out reverently. We are to shine brightly. And thirdly and finally, we are to sacrifice joyfully. We're to sacrifice joyfully. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, what's Paul talking about? Perhaps the language sounds a little strange here. Well, Paul obviously has in mind Old Testament uh, sacrificial offerings. The priests, of course, had to make all kinds of regular sacrifices at the temple some of which involved a drink offering, possibly of blood or oil being poured out. And you might say that the drink offering was sort of the finishing touch. The main part of the offering, of course, was the lamb or the bull, the the sacrificial animal. The drink offering was just kind of the bit that went along with it. And so Paul is once again considering the possibility here that 
He could give up his whole life in the service of Christ for the the good of the Philippians and for the, the spread of the gospel that he's offering up his own life. But he says, if I do that, if my life is given up for Christ, it's, it's just the drink offering. It's just that token offering. It's, it's not that much compared to what Christ has done for me, I think is what he's saying. And he's saying as well that, <coughs> that he's happy to keep on pouring himself out. He's, he's willing to keep on sacrificially serving the church. If it means seeing the Philippians persevere in their faith. As long as they keep on working out their own salvation, as long as they keep on shining as lights in the world, Paul will be content. He'll know that his own labors, his own sacrifices are worth it. Likewise, or sorry, look what he says in verse 18. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. And so just notice the, the, the flow of his words there. He says, even if I am poured out as a, as a sacrificial offering, I am glad. And he says, likewise, you also should be glad. So he's saying, if you find yourselves having to pour yourselves out, if you find yourself sacrificing for the sake of Christ, you do it joyfully and gladly as well. And again, remember the context in which all of this comes here. In verses 12 to 18, as Paul talks about himself, uh, sacrificing himself, as he talks about the Philippians perhaps having to sacrifice themselves. All of this comes after Paul has described to us the supreme sacrifice of Christ. Back in verses 5 to 11, Christ who came down to earth, humiliated in the death he chose to die, Sacrificing his life for the church and then exalted, glorified upon his return to heaven. And so Paul isn't just saying to the Philippians here, look at me and be like me. Again, in the context, he's saying, let's all look at Christ and be like Christ. Be willing to pour ourselves out for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. Christian parents, you have and perhaps you continue to pour yourselves out in many ways for the good of your children. In ways that perhaps they don't fully understand just yet. But by God's grace they will someday. And you set aside time to pray with them and for them and to catechize them and to teach them in family worship. And even if they don't seem to be listening sometimes... You persevere in that. The time you sacrifice to get them to youth events and Bible clubs and the hundreds of other little things you do for them. Rejoice as you pour yourself out and believe that God will add his blessing to it. Fellow elders, pastors, long session meetings, extended prayer times, time given to visitation. Time sometimes spent pleading with people about the things of God and the need to come back to the things of God. We're to rejoice as we pour ourselves out for the flock of Christ that is among us. Young people, as you look around this room, when you leave this evening, you'll see people who have done and are willing to pour themselves out for your spiritual good. Not just your parents, but your whole church family. They pray for you. 
They ask about you. They seek to give you a good example. To keep the vows they made when you were baptised. This church congregation still exists 200 years after a covenanting witness began in Dromore. Because men and women have poured themselves out for its life and witness. Young people don't just in future look for comfort and worldly success. Pour yourselves out. Whether that means giving up a bit of holiday time to go on a go team or some other form of mission. Whether that means choosing to join the small, uncool, less popular church because it's the one preaching the gospel. Church members, pour yourself out in this year that lies ahead. Make that effort to be in the place of prayer, the engine room of the church. I can't be the first person to tell you that that's the case. Whether it's our our corporate witness in this town, whether it's the, the possibilities for the building, it needs constant prayer. So be there when it's time to pray. Pour yourselves out for the sake of the gospel in this place. Again, this all flows from what Paul has said, Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember him and his example. And doing any of the things I've mentioned, as costly as they they may be, it's no more than imitating Christ, who sacrificed himself for the glory of God and the good of his people. The world is trying to sell us the lie that self-fulfillment is better than self-sacrifice. That it's self-fulfillment rather than self-sacrifice that is ultimately best for us. It's not the case. Paul reminds us in verse 16. The day of Christ is coming. And when we see him, the one who was humbled so low but who has been exalted so high... However much it cost us or tired us to pour ourselves out. It will have been worth it to hear our saviour say well done good and faithful servant. And that will be when life really begins. In the meantime friends we are to work out our salvation reverently. We are to shine brightly. And we are to sacrifice joyfully. By God's help and grace. Amen.